This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash twist. Charthop. Growing your company is hard. Planning for it doesn't have to be. Visualize your company's future in seconds with Charthop. Get $600 in credits, which will cover your first five employees, by signing up at charthop.com slash twist today. And Gusto. Running a startup is hard work, but thankfully Gusto makes payroll easy. They also offer flexible benefits, onboarding, and so much more. Twist listeners get three months free at gusto.com slash twist. All right, everybody, welcome to This Week in Startups. It has been a crazy week, month, and year, obviously, not only because of the pandemic and the election, but because we have so many companies that are going public. And this is a complete 180 degree change from what we've seen over the past decade where founders were taking the horrible advice to stay private longer. So they didn't have to deal with reality scrutiny. And they continue to receive just incredible amounts of funding with very little governance. And that can get you into trouble as we've seen with WeWork and Uber and other companies that in some cases blew up like we work in other cases, had a rocky road to their IPO. Uh, but today, at the taping of this on December 10th, 2020, we have two huge IPOs that have occurred this week, both DoorDash and Airbnb. And the results have been absolutely stunning with me to discuss these issues and more Alex Wilhelm of the equity podcast over at TechCrunch, senior editor at TechCrunch calling in from somewhere in the Northeast. That's correct. Uh, Providence, actually, where it's yes. not not warm. So I'm here from the uh, the frozen Arctic is what it feels like. And how is the pandemic spike in Rhode Island? Is there one? It's bad. Yeah, we're yeah. among the worst in the uh, nation on a per capita basis. So uh, my wife hasn't let me out of the house in uh, a couple of weeks. Um, and so that's not going to change until probably June. So I'll be literally in this chair uh, until Q3. So that's exciting. Crazy. Well, stay safe. And yeah, when it gets cold, everybody's forced to go inside. And then everybody decided to YOLO for Thanksgiving. And here we are, <laughs> uh, literally in the final inning of the game. Yes. And people decided like, I don't know what analogy to use, but I was talking to a friend of mine. I was like, this is like dying on the way back from a war. Like the we know the vaccines work. They're coming literally tomorrow or next week. Yep. And... The war ends and people start dancing in a minefield on the way back to the boats. And it's like, no, 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 wait till you get back to shore to dance. Like, don't don't get yourself killed. We'll stay safe, uh, obviously. Uh, Beth Kindig is with us. She is Beth underscore Kindig on the Twitter. And she is a tech stock analyst with the newsletter, Beth.technology. Nice use of the new top level domain names. Beth, welcome to the program for your first appearance. Thank you. So let's start, Beth, with what we saw today. Airbnb uh, made it out, and DoorDash was yesterday. Both of them essentially doubled, and so Bill Gurley is probably <laughs> having an absolute uh, meltdown right now that these were underpriced, and there was massive demand for these two companies. Maybe what are your initial thoughts on this uh, unbelievable spike? I mean, I don't think anybody thought Airbnb would be 
getting close to 100 billion or DoorDash would be worth 40 billion. Th these are crazy valuations for these companies. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's always a lot of risk when everything's been priced in and a lot of consumers, a lot of investors uh, on the public markets, they use DoorDash, they use Airbnb, and they're very familiar with the name. So I think it's been fully priced. What we really try to do is we try to find opportunities that maybe are lesser known. So I would say the bigger news for us this week was Luminar, which is a LiDAR company that's partnered with Mobileye and Volvo. And then we also really like C3, which is Enterprise AI. We think that they could uh, you know, really eat uh, a lot of market share in the future. And these are not as talked about. So for us, uh, DoorDash and Airbnb came out the gate and they are certainly fully priced, I think, at this point. So there's a lot of risk because when we've done, uh, we've done a ton of analysis, we've, we use our own money uh, for this with our fund. Uh, most, the large majority is in almost every single stock trades at its opening price again after the lockup period. So you see this initial excitement the first six months, uh, employees and insiders and whatnot can't sell their shares. And then after six months, the lockup expires and you start to see it return back to an opening price. Uh, we've seen this with super strong stocks. CrowdStrike was you know, immaculate and so was Zoom Video on their S1 filings. And when they came out the gate, uh, you know, it shot up. But after the lockup period, they both went uh, either at IPO opening or below. So. That's just some some of the things we always try to give an edge and we try not to um, get too exuberant over these big names, but certainly, uh, you know, they both clearly have a big addressable market. So, And when you mention those uh, sort of retail investors, people who love the products themselves, that was like the original, I forgot the guy who was, you know, wrote some of those beat the market books, but his basic premise was buy what you know. Like if you love Disneyland, go to Disneyland. If you love the gap, buy the gap. Well, here we are, Robinhood traders, you know, there's some number of them, 15 million of them or something like that in the market. Alex, I'm curious your thoughts on how much of DoorDash and Airbnb have to do with retail investors who are new to the market, who are putting in orders, maybe without a price on them. And they just say, I want to own this because, you know, stonks, <laughs> as yeah. the meme says, go up. So one thing that uh, that I learned over the summer, I was talking to, I think it was the CEO of Lemonade after they went public in like, you know, June, July, whatever it was. And I was just riffing with him because they also had a very good first day. And I was like, you know, good job, but also, you know, what the heck is going on? And he emphasized the importance of brand to me. And, you know, mm. as a person who opens an S1 and scrolls past all the words to the income statement immediately, because I don't want to hear your hype, I just want to see the results. Right. I was very perplexed by this, but I really think the brand point resonates with the investors you're talking about. I think the Robinhood crew do want to own shares and companies they know. I think that the difference between this and those old books you were talking about is this, the, the number of investors out there that are willing to make bets is much larger. And I don't think the float of any of these IPOs has gotten much larger. So we're seeing probably a, a greater imbalance in supply and demand in these early couple of trades. So I'm very sympathetic to what Beth said about, let's see where we are in six months. I don't think these companies left 50% of the value on the table. I think they're just artificially inflated in the short term. So a great first day, but I don't think it's inherent that their value has gone up this much in, um, in such a short period of time. And neither of these were direct listings. If they had been direct listings, then there would not be a lockup, correct, Beth? Correct. And we've actually been, you know, Slack and uh, Shopify both were, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Spotify. Sorry about that. Spotify yeah. and Slack, they were both uh, direct listings and they did not perform that well. I mean, we, we were Slack investors. We actually got in pretty low during the March sell-off. So certainly happy to see what happened recently, but it took a long time. You really had to stick it out with Slack and uh, Spotify as well. Uh, they... 
I, I believe they opened around 185 and it was back down to 120 and it took a long time for them to break the 185 again with the direct listing. I think that liquidity in the beginning can really weaken uh, the strength of the stock. I, I prefer lockup periods for everyone, for everyone involved. So you prefer the lockup so that you don't have a rush to the exits. Right. But you still have a rush to the exits after in that six to 12 month period. So I, I guess that would, the counter argument would be why not allow just everybody to take the medicine early and, and, and kind of get to the ground truth quicker. There's something I think that builds confidence when the stock doesn't <clears throat> immediately plummet like right out the gate. And uh, the other thing is there's more price at price action to analyze. So most of the market is run on machines. There's a lot of technical analysts out there. Goldman Sachs is not just buying great companies. They're looking at the technicals and the price action. So when you have more history, you can determine a little bit better as to where the stock price is going to go. So just looking at these numbers today um, and putting them into a little bit of context, DoorDash has a $59 billion market cap with $1.9 billion <laughs> in revenue. So that would be 30 plus times top line revenue for 2020. Forget about earnings on these for a moment. Airbnb is over 100 or was over 100 today in terms of the market cap with 2.52 billion through the first three quarters. So if we were to add another, whatever that is, 800 million, you'd be at 3.5. So that would be 33 times. So they're both trading somewhere in the 30x top line revenue. That's that's a bit Bonkers. disconcerting, yes, Alex. I mean, I mean, look. I think we've all become more and more accustomed to high SaaS revenue multiples because SaaS revenue expands over time. It's highly durable and incredibly high gross margin. Cool. Not every company deserves a SaaS-like multiple, let alone a rich SaaS-like multiple. DoorDash is currently valued like a software company that's in the top five software companies in the world. It doesn't have the same gross margins. Uh, it doesn't have the same proven revenue repeatability. And you know what? It's it's coming to this IPO off the back of a very impressive year. To be totally honest, they've done amazingly well, but there's a lot of question marks about what happens to their sales growth when the pandemic ends and we can all go outside again. So, you know, I look at this valuation and I'm very excited for DoorDash and the investors and the founders and the employees. It's all, it's great. Good job. But, uh, I, I think when Beth said fully priced in, I, I, I think she was being a little bit modest. I think it's actually probably just flat out overvalued at this price. I, I see no real reason for it. Beth, is there a price if you were to put a multiple on these two specific companies, just, you know, 10x, 20x revenue that they would become attractive to you? If right yeah. now they're 30 and change times top line revenue, what number would be attractive to you? What would be tolerable to you? Two numbers. Yeah. So I'll buy the 30x if I know that they're going to be growing 60% to 100% the following year. And the problem that we're reaching with Airbnb, DoorDash, and some of the ones that I'm even invested in is that um, they're going to be harder comps, basically. And so the institutions and the analysts, they all kind of know that. So you're seeing a little bit of a cooling off with any of these stocks that were able to put up triple digit growth. You're seeing like Shopify, Zoom Video, a, a lot of these Datadog you're seeing them cool off because the analysts just don't know how to gauge the harder comps next year. When you've grown 100%, 300%, can you multiply on that larger revenue base? Um, so it's all about the forward. I will buy a 30X company, um, but I think we're in a period of time where it's more risky than ever before to buy 30X tailwinds from COVID companies. And then the 20X is actually pretty comfortable for me if it's in the 55% or higher revenue growth range year over year. 
All right, when we get back from this quick break, I want to talk a little bit about what we saw from Zoom specifically and what we think will happen going forward. And if the Slack exit, if we can infer something from what's happening in the market, if those investors and management team wanted to take the cash and run with it as opposed to try to stay independent, which you know, they probably could have done, but it seems to me that maybe that's a bit of a tell of where the market is heading when we get back on This Week in Startups. Okay, snowmen and ugly sweater, some things about the holiday season will never change, even when everything around us has. So when your small business needs to ramp up for the new year, and you're probably doing your planning just like I am right now, you're going to need to hire the right people quickly to execute on your plans and LinkedIn Jobs is here to help. LinkedIn Jobs matches your open roles with qualified candidates, which means you can find the right person for your business fast ugly sweaters are not included. Getting started with LinkedIn Jobs is easier than ever. And since LinkedIn has over 722 million members worldwide, you can start finding those qualified candidates fast. You can manage these job posts right inside of the familiar LinkedIn.com interface. And you get all of the functionality streamlined into one simple screen. And you can do it all from your mobile phone, right? Jay Berkowitz uh, from 10 Golden Rules, which is a boutique digital marketing agency, used LinkedIn. And he told us this story. He's a fan of the pod. And he was looking for an account manager because his business is booming. And he got over 150 great applications, identified his two targets that he wanted to uh, pursue. And it turned out they had mutual connections, right? He hired his favorite candidate and they've worked out great so far. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn jobs, you can pay what you want and get the first $50 off right now at linkedin.com slash twist. That's right. Get a 50-5-0 off your first job posting. Terms and conditions do apply because you're going to get the $50 by going to linkedin.com slash T-W-I-S-T. All right, welcome back. Beth Kindig is here. She is a tech stock analyst. She invests her own money, correct? Correct. We have a fund. Yep. You have a fund. And so you are literally making bets and you can read her new- newsletter at beth.technology. She contributes to Forbes, Market Watch, Fox, and other uh, news platforms. But Let's face it, everybody's going direct these days. Alex Wilhelm has been <laughs> on the podcast uh, so many times, I can't even uh, count them. And he is a senior editor of TechCrunch and does their equity podcast. And I mean, you're basically the guy who dives into the S1s when they get published. And so life has been a bit crazy. More S1s in the last month than probably the last 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I joke that it's better to be busy than bored. But right. I think we've really stretched that to the max. Um, and on the, you know, being the person who dives into the S1s, most people don't like to do that. I happen to be a freak in that I enjoy reading them. So that's all landed in my lap because it's not, you know, drudgery. So yeah, I do it. Yeah. And, and you have, a, do you have, have a favorite section you like to go to? Just the balance sheet, just the revenue? I like to go there first. And then I like to do second. I like to go fiddle around with their non-gap metrics and try to figure out what they're doing to lie to me. Uh, because every company has their own warped view of reality about what's actually fair for their business, and it's always complete crap. Uh, and if it's a SaaS company, go read the net dollar retention, retention section and figure out how they're making the numbers look better than they actually are. It's always fun to see how they're trying to get around the truth. So there's a little bit of accounting that goes on that could be creative <laughs> in this gap accounting. Give us an example of you know, something egregious, something reasonable, something maybe conservative, or in that range when you're looking at how they do their accounting with re- in relation to this 
you know, let's say the last two years of, of public companies? Yeah, I think we've seen more companies begin to report stats that we tend to throw around in the startup world, like ARR. If you go back a couple of years, I think it was harder to get ARR written down on your S1. Uh, but companies now like CrowdStrike, which we'll get to later on, now both report, you know, gap revenue and also ARR growth in their earnings. So it's become a bit more standard. And I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that, neutral about it. Uh, what I don't like, for example, that I think is, is too, too loose is when companies discount lost customers and then only discuss net revenue retention of customers that didn't churn because you're just deleting the bad news and only keeping the good news and claiming that you're giving me real numbers, which is, you know, bad. And so then, to translate uh, that for people who don't haven't heard these terms, annual uh, reoccurring revenue would be yes, ARR. if you are Slack and people are paying whatever it is, $100 per seat, and you've got a million people, you've got $100 million in ARR. But what you're saying is, if 10% of those were to churn, and now you're down to whatever it is, 900,000 members, the net retention if of the existing people who are still using the product is kind of intellectually dishonest because you really want to include the people who churned. Yeah. So let's say, you know, you have a hundred customers and, you know, 90 of them pay you $110 next year, not a hundred. And then you tell me your net revenue retention is, is 110% because you've not count to the customers that churned, to me, you're being disingenuous. And we see a lot of companies try to take what I think are startup-ish metrics and bring them into the public world, back to your point about going public being important for scrutiny. And that always makes me a little bit mad. If you're a seed stage startup, we'll talk about the idea. If you're a series C, I want to know about gross margin improvements. And if you're going public, I want gap numbers, you know? So the standards get higher as you get older as a company. Um, I just like to see just straight up gap stuff. I mean, I mean, it's standard for a reason. It's good. Yeah. And for those people who don't know, generally accepted accounting principles, Sorry, yes. which are a bit of a moving target because they do change over time. And sure. then people do lobby to change them. I remember back in the day, AOL was trying to say their $300 acquisition price could be spent over 10 years or something. And they got themselves in all kinds of trouble with those creative moments. Beth, what are you seeing in terms of creativity in accounting now, that would either be a red flag or, I mean, maybe even an opportunity where, you know, some group of people are being conservative and their companies are getting dinged for it. Yeah, I guess I'll take the opportunity to talk about one of my pet peeves um, is when, you know, like uh, Snowflake is an awesome product and I absolutely think the management is incredible. Um, it's only six years old. And so when you look at the growth rates, uh, they, people will say, we've never seen any tech company have these growth rates, which isn't actually true because if you adjust many of the other companies that have gone public that went public in their eighth year, ninth year, whatever, 10th year even, they were growing at the same rate as Snowflake is now or even higher. So that's one thing that kind of uh, is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because Jason, I know you know this and Alex, you too, like startups, uh, tech startups, and the, the younger you are, uh, the faster you're, you're going to grow, the higher your growth number, you have a small revenue base and year six from nearly every company out there is going to be better growth rate than year eight or nine. So I think adjusting the age of the company is really important when you're trying to do an apples to apples comparison. So I'll just throw that one out there because that's been top of mind. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the concept here is you, you've got a company like a, um, you know, even if you took a first year, a second year startup that had hit a million dollars in revenue and they grew 300% and they hit 3 million the next year. It's only two incremental million, whereas a company doing a billion dollars growing 20% a year. You know, now they're putting uh, $200 million into, if they were at a, or if they were at a billion dollars in revenue, $200 million gets harder and harder to clear that hurdle as time goes on, correct? Correct. And Snowflake in year eight or nine, you know, I'm going to just 
say is it will probably be, you know, number six, seven or eight, as far as like the, the top growing tech company on the markets. Um, CrowdStrike is still very high up there for its eighth year and ninth year. If you adjust it for its sixth year, it was it's grew faster than Snowflake. So did Zoom Video. I think Slack, actually Slack did as well. So there's quite a few of them that if you were to adjust it to what was their growth rate in the sixth year, uh, they were higher than even Snowflake. So I think that's really important because when you're around a lot of startups, you know that piece. Uh, and I don't think the public markets are fully aware of that. So Alex, when we look at Slack, which sure. was at 800 million in revenue, they're doing about 200 billion a quarter. They're growing 50, 60% year over year, uh, which is a pretty, pretty great growth rate, but yep. they sold for 27 billion. So 27, seven. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about almost 30 times revenue again. Seems like this 30x top line is becoming a, a number for some reason. Uh, maybe it's the breaking point or it's the upward bounds. What do you take from them selling now? If they've got a business that's growing 50%, why not continue to grow, try to be like Zoom and try to own this platform and maybe even acquire other companies? Why be acquired? It's hard to read Stuart, the CEO's heart on this. Um, I'll, I'll just say that what Zoom has done, I think, is the edge case. I don't think most companies could accelerate as much as Zoom has and be as operationally excellent as Zoom has. So I don't want to say if Zoom succeeded, why did Slack fail to stay independent? Because Microsoft is coming after both of them. But I think Microsoft is coming after Slack a bit more directly. Now, Microsoft Teams, the competing product to Slack, does include video chat. So it is kind of going against Zoom a little bit as well as Slack. But I think it's mostly a contra Slack product. And mm. my suspicion is that Microsoft's very deep enterprise sales channels were just presenting an increasing level of friction to Slack and its ability to sell and grow. So if you're Slack, what you want to do is partner up with someone who already has deep enterprise relationships. And I was talking to... um Sapphire Ventures, uh, Jai Das about this, uh, on an interview we were doing. And he said, you know, if you're Slack, even if you're Slack, it's hard to get a CIO to sit down with you. But if you're Salesforce, they already are on all those phones. They know all those people. They can just call them up and get the meeting like that. So maybe you need a big brother essentially to help you grow contra Microsoft while Microsoft is coming after you. So I can see it. Stuart is now incredibly wealthy. The company's exited. He gets to relax in Mark Benioff's shadow and grow as fast as he can. I kind of understand the, I, from that perspective, so I kind of So a little bit of it. skittishness. Hey, there's too much risk. There's too much, I'm uh, very too, too much headwinds. I, I'm hesitant to call Slack in any capacity skittish. I, I, I think this must have been a decision based on how can we go to war with the most weapons versus we're going to lose. You know, I, th they've been great. And I, I've been a Slack user forever. And I, I like the company and the product. But I, I, I understand the logic of trying to go to some place that has much deeper enterprise relationships if you want to sell larger seat count deals and also just defend yourself against Microsoft. And in fact, they only had 87 companies paying over a million dollars a year, which- there you go. You know, like they, uh, that would be pathetic for a Microsoft or Salesforce or Oracle to have like that small a number of the Fortune 500 paying such a pittance for a product that is so, let's face it, trans transformative to an organization. Beth, what are your thoughts on that, Sal? And, you know, what, how does that go down? Is it top down pressure from the founder or the board to the founder or just everybody sitting there going, this price is crazy. We should just take it. Yeah, I think this year really uh, started to separate Slack and Zoom a little bit. And I think maybe this is where Slack got to thinking like it, an acquisition would be a good idea. Uh, so Zoom jumped from an enterprise company to being also a consumer company with COVID. And that blew open this new addressable market that I'm a Zoom holder. I've 
been a Zoom bull for a long time. Uh, so I just want to put that out there. But Zoom basically has completely blown open their addressable market because they're going across consumers. And then due to the fact that it's Zoom phone and Zoom web, web video conferencing, uh, telecoms globally are starting to partner with Zoom now. So Rakuten, Deutsche Telekom. So Slack doesn't really have that mobility across consumer. And as far as getting integrated with very large global corporations on messaging, if you will, that that's not likely. Uh, messaging seems to be very localized. And, uh, you know, I, I would have to look at the numbers, but uh, Zoom, on the other hand, is going global. They're now consumer, which is really the jackpot. All things are consumer. Uh, with the exception of Microsoft, uh, which technically was kind of a long time ago, a consumer operating system, if you look at it that way. But uh, in general, what I'm trying to explain here is that Zoom is kind of in a league of its own where I think Slack was getting uh, surrounded by Microsoft Teams, accelerating enterprise versus enterprise was getting really tough. I actually was wondering if Amazon and AWS was going to start integrating with Slack because I know that they're a big customer there. Uh, I really like, uh, you know, the name of the product escapes me right now, but where enterprises communicate with each other through the messaging system. Uh, Slack Connect, I believe is what they call that. That is really intriguing to me. And I think that's where Salesforce with the hordes of data that uh, Slack has, it could be a very decent Yeah, that's going to be a, a huge win. Those, those cross-organization uh, rooms have become super dynamic for me. I mean, we have a couple of boards now that have, we'll just start a room for a board of a company and then invite that company and invite the other board members. And then all of a sudden we've got this persistent channel to talk about board issues and it's just sitting right there and it works great. Uh, when we get back from this quick break, I want to understand what happens to Zoom post pandemic because this seems to be a huge risk factor if it is in fact going as a uh, consumer play and that's a big part of this. Are consumers going to still pay 15 bucks a month or 180 bucks a year, whatever it is? for a product that they can get for free in Skype and Google Hangouts and, and many other places when we get back on This Week in Startups. Hey, listen, before you grow your company, you need to know your company. And ChartHop is an organizational management platform that helps companies focus on their most important asset, people. ChartHop's seamless integrations let you collect, organize, and analyze all your people data in one platform. You're going to be able to build an agile, adaptable, and inclusive teams. You're going to automatically create and update your org chart. And that's really the interface. You see your org chart. You can see it over time by sliding a timer. You can see how your organization is going to grow over time. And you can centralize your people data with seamless integrations. No spreadsheets needed. So you can scale your company with transparency and intention. Here's a quick demo for those of you watching online. It allows you to visually build out your team so you can spend more time on strategy and less time moving around boxes in PowerPoint, which is meaningless. You can create these compelling visualizations of all your people data from diversity metrics to compensation to performance reviews, all directly in the org chart. Your people are your greatest asset. I know you hear that all the time. The reason you hear it all the time is because it's true. Twist listeners are going to get $600. That's six hundies right there. In credits by signing up right now at charthop.com slash twist c-h-a-r-t-h-o-p.com slash twist today six hundy is going to cover your first five employees on the platform so you're going to be all set if you're a startup and then it's just very affordable from that point on go ahead and visit charthop.com slash twist to build your dream team today welcome back to this week in startup beth kindling kindig sorry uh and alex wilhelm are with us he's alex he's got his first name 
Beth, somehow you got you were late to the party. You have Beth underscore Kindig, K-I-N-D-I-G. What is going on? How do you not have at Beth? Who is at Beth on Twitter? <laughs> I mean, That's it's, not it's technology, a, yeah. It's a prerequisite to be on this podcast that you must be in the first name club. <laughs> what is going on? You could only have like uh, six guests then, Jason. I mean, that's going to be a really, really small <laughs> circle of people. It's like you and I and three other people. Yeah. Veronica Belmont, Ryan. There you go. <laughs> Jack. Jack. Yes. Jack. We've, we're now going to limit to first name club. Um, I literally, uh, it's, I, I also got, wound up getting Jason on uh, Instagram and I, I didn't know that anybody can DM each other on Instagram. And then I found like, I'm not big in the Instagram game. I'm a 50 year old, like tech dude. I mean, I, like literally I post my, my daughters and whatever meat I'm smoking. Like that's my, that's my Instagram life. But I just realized I had like thousands of people asking me to buy a Jason on Instagram. And some of them were like famous Jasons, like comedians or whatever. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, pretty hilarious. So Zoom gets this incredible tailwind, unexpected of the pandemic. Every school is a Zoom school, uh, every party, weddings, dystopian birthday parties, book clubs. Uh, but these products are available for free in other places. Zoom somehow beat Google Hangouts and Skype and other free services, which to me uh, is just a real tribute to Eric's you know, I mean, he, he was at this, he was at WebEx before this or something? Uh, Cisco. Cisco. Uh, so, you know, he's got a lot of um, DNA in this space. He obviously built the best product, but uh, I'm not sure that product's going to be able to uh, hold off free options from people like a Facebook or people like uh, Amazon or whoever else wants to make free versions of this. And uh, every iPhone has... FaceTime built into it. So if Apple decided suddenly to make FaceTime cross-platform, I mean, oh my Lord. I mean, I know they wouldn't do that, but I'm putting the idea out there for Tim sure. Cook if he wants to add a hundred billion in market cap. I don't know if he needs it. So as a shareholder, what do you think, Beth, about Zoom post-pandemic? So when you look at consumer behavior, I think they're clearly choosing Zoom. I mean, the numbers couldn't be better. And actually in their earnings reports, uh, accounts over 10 are growing like 400 plus percent. So they're very strong in the paid larger accounts. And then when you look at consumer behavior, uh, it's really hard to change consumer behavior. And I would say, you know, I, I went through this on Roku for many years as well, because everyone says Google, Amazon, etc. And what I would say is, look deeply and you know, look deeply at the management team that could take those tech giants on and execute so flawlessly that uh, they, they came out ahead. Rather than saying, what if that changes? I would say, I'm going to assume that will continue. And uh, so for me, like when you, I mean, you know, Google Hangouts, I can't even remember when that was launched. I feel like it was 10 years ago or something. Skype has come and gone. Uh, for whatever reason, those aren't the right products. I mean, I know the reason it's the friction. It's the fact that they want you in a walled garden. So Google and Microsoft, they want to trap you in. You've got to download their software. you got to give them your emails and set up an account, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not what people want. People want to just click a link, boom, I'm in. And I don't want to be part of a walled garden. And Zoom doesn't need you to be part of a walled garden because they don't really have, you know, extra products that that data and that PII is going to be informative for. So uh, to me, I think Zoom has executed really well, and I am on the side of I will assume that will continue because I think that leadership did a, did a great job already. What if the if there are a large number of unsubscribes when people go back to school in September and you see some churn like that? What would the how would the market interpret that? 
Yeah, I think that uh, there could be, it's actually interesting because in their last earnings report, we did have some shelter in place let up, uh, you know, in Q3, it wasn't nearly as strong of a shelter in place. And they said their churn was much lower than they expected. So we're not seeing on the granular mm-hmm. level, any evidence that Zoom's position is being challenged depending on locket, uh, you know, uh, shelter in order place uh, or shelter in place orders and things like that. Uh, and then it's that higher level international expansion that I think is really going to hedge them is they're already being adopted by these telecoms. And I think that where cloud and the telecoms come together is a really interesting space. And uh, because as you drive around, like we don't actually need hardwired phones ever anymore at all. We can completely run phone through the cloud. So telecoms are aware of that. And I think they're starting to partner with Zoom to make that a seamless integration. Alex, what's your long-term concerns in a post-pandemic world? Because if we look at the vaccine numbers, uh, 40, 50, 60 million is the current trajectory for uh, December, January, February. Yep. Probably conservatively 75 million Americans have had COVID. And if you add those two shots, that's another 60, 70 million. You're already at 150 out of 330 million Americans, of which would be all the high risk and frontline workers. Plus, there might be some built in immunity for another 20 to 50 million Americans. By March 1st, more than 50% of the country is going to be through this, which means spreading is going to be really hard if people are wearing masks and going out. And so we're going to see the numbers plummet. I predict March 1st. We will see the number of cases and deaths absolutely just drop off a cliff. We'll hit 200 deaths a day. I believe in March, you can clip this and, and <laughs> remind shame me. Shame you think, later. Shame me later. Uh, well, I think it could have been, sadly, we could have been under, we were under 200 deaths for some days in uh, August, I believe. Yes. And we just refused to wear masks like idiots and people went YOLO because they just don't understand science. But if we get down to under 200 deaths a day and it's, you know, 90% old people who haven't gotten the vaccine, we're, this is going to be over, I think, April 1st. As some people debate, you know, summer or next year. W- what about DoorDash's surge and Zoom's surge? Do you think that those stocks are going to get meaningfully clipped in terms of revenue? And then how would the market react to that? Or are they going to figure out other things to do and, you know, they'll be stable? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a bit more bullish on on Zoom than DoorDash in that context. And just to be clear, just because Beth has been uh, disclosing, all, all my money is in very boring index funds. So I have no position in Nicely any of these we're talking about. Vanguard, super low? Wealthfront? Uh, actually, Fidelity, zero cost. So even lower than low. I pay Whoa. nothing. Ha, 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 ha. I love it. I love it. That's because I'm just, I don't think I'm smarter than the market. I, I, I aspire to Beth's confidence and uh, ability to find trends. I'm much more behind <laughs> the curve, sadly. Well, no, Beth, I mean, on that note, if you're not an active manager who is spending 40 hours a week or 20 hours a week minimum managing a portfolio, Alex is doing the right thing, right? Yes. Yes. We, we actually have a larger team. So there's two finance guys on my team. It's not just myself. And so we take it really seriously. Yeah, but for somebody who is even a civilian, but who works in tech journalism, you're much better off just being in a low cost index fund or a no cost index fund. We're killing it right now. We're actually going to come out with our results and they're getting uh, voluntarily audited out of a place in San Francisco. So we think it was somewhat of a football team where everyone had a specialty and they came together to share it. So we are absolutely beating index funds in the market. 
except for ARC. <laughs> we're, we're trailing ARC. We're trailing ARC Innovation ETF. So, okay. Cool. Uh, but answering Jason's question about yes. uh, about Zoom and DoorDash. So the reason yeah. why I, I'm more bullish on Zoom is uh, my family has had a a chat on Zoom uh, on Sundays every single day, every single week. Sorry, since the start of the pandemic, oh. and we don't use uh, a personal paid account. We use my wife's work account. Hopefully saying mm. that won't get her in trouble. And so I, I, I think a lot of the consumer behavior is going to stay because my parents aren't going to move 3,000 miles closer to me. I think there's a lot of this behavior that we picked up is going to stick. Uh, now with DoorDash, on the other hand, though, there's a really great substitute for this. Uh, I, I can, instead of paying DoorDash a bunch of money to order food, I can go outside. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of that, not just because we've all been locked in and we're pent up to go out, but because going to your restaurant's lovely. I want to get out of my house. I've been in there so much. I don't want to eat more dinner on the couch in front of the television. But no. Zoom, on the other hand, makes my life bigger. I'm not going to get rid of that. I'm not going to get rid of the connections it brings me. And I think Beth's point about the uh, the growth in accounts of 10 or greater is like the key metric to watch for them. Because if that keeps growing, they have a lot of, I think, built-in later growth because those accounts will continue to grow back to our net dollar retention argument from earlier in the show. So I'm I'm optimistic about Zoom. Also, Eric, the CEO, is brilliant, and I think they have the right customer first perspective. Uh, DoorDash, I mean, I can't knock it because it had a great year, but I'm less certain that people are going to keep paying that much for dinner when they can go down the street. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a YOLO roaring twenties like we've never seen in our lifetime. You you agree with that, Beth? People are going to just go out to whatever remaining restaurants are still open, whoever makes it to the other side are going to be, it's going to be hard to get a reservation in the summer. Let's put it that way. Every hotel, every flight to Europe, it's going to be bonkers. Yeah. I'll be going out just to support the restaurants. You know, I mean, I want these yeah. restaurants to stay in business, so I'll just do it even for that, let alone the fact that it'd be nice to get out of the house. Also zoom. It would seem to me is underpriced in the enterprise. They're super cheap for an enterprise product to, if you look at how much we're using it, I, I, everybody's using it for at least 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week. So that means every month you're using it 40, 50, maybe 100 hours a month on Zoom and you're paying $15. I mean, that's- The gross margins are good. I mean, the gross margins are good so they can afford to sell it cheaply. I mean, how can you compete with rock solid and cheap? I mean, Google Meet didn't take off because it's not as consistent. Skype was inconsistent. I mean, the, the secret sauce for, for Zoom is that it just works every time. I never load Zoom and wonder. I always know, you know, and yeah, like once in a while, you'll get somebody who will have their audio. They'll have, they'll be on Wi Fi. You know, it's like these people who are on like Wi Fi from their routers 10 years old and they never set it up and they don't take any responsibility for their Ethernet cables or anything like that. Beth, you think they could charge more, correct? I do. And the management had a great comment in the last earnings call where they said, we choose to give away free accounts because we don't have to spend on sales and marketing that way. So, mm. you know, you can look at the gross margins, you can look at the operating margins, but this company is extremely profitable too. But as far as tech growth goes, that bottom line number is very, very impressive. And it grew like 900% this year. So uh, the, the EPS and the profitability. So I think their operating margins are around 20%, if I remember right. Uh, I'd have to look that up. But I know that uh, as far as their, their peers in cloud software, their top line is good and strong and their bottom line is too. So that's pretty rare. All right. Here's a quick question before we go to break. Think about it. If Zoom doubled their prices 
and added some persistent chat, you know, like a new feature, like basically build in Slack, uh, which is the obvious next thing for them to do is you leave your Zoom open the whole time and there's just folders and you can click any one of those folders and that equals a group of people who go on a call. They add that feature, they double their price. I want to know how many customers you think they lose when they double the price when we get back on This Week in Startups. 2020 has proven to be a year of many things and 2021 is the year you are going to switch to a better payroll program and Gusto is the way to do that. Gusto wasn't just built for small businesses. It was built for the people behind them and their online payroll is so easy to use. We use it. It can automatically calculate your paychecks and file all of your payroll taxes. Three out of four customers say they run payroll in 10 minutes or less, which means you'll have more time to run your business. Heidi, who runs HR here at launch, says Gusto frees her up to do more business critical tasks like running our syndicate, as an example. Plus, they offer unlimited payrolls for one monthly price. There's no hidden fees, and Gusto can also help with time tracking, health insurance, 401ks, onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters, and of course, they provide access to HR experts and have tremendous customer support. If you're moving from one provider to another, they can transfer all your data for you. And it's no surprise that 94% of customers are likely to recommend Gusto. Here's the best part. Because you're a Twist listener, you'll get three months totally free. That's right. Twist listeners, three months free. Just go to gusto.com slash twist. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash twist. Again, that's gusto.com slash twist. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. Get started today, right now by going to gusto.com slash twist. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. We're chopping up all the tech news uh, with Alex and Beth. And when we went to commercial, Zoom seems to have a clear path to incorporating a Slack-like feature. We could have a, you know, Alex, for your family gathering, why isn't there a folder on the right-hand side of Zoom and you leave Zoom open all day and when you click that folder, Everybody gets a call. And then you have your Wednesday meeting or your morning editorial meeting at TechCrunch or Beth, you have your, you know, end of day meeting with your investment team. They could very easily add a Slack-like functionality. They could do it in their sleep, Eric. And I have to say, I'm very impressed with Eric because I was super critical of like them rooting people's devices and running uh, the videos in some cases through China and using a bunch of Chinese developers. And I was like, I would never use this software when it first come out. Like Chinese are obviously spying on everybody. Like if you have servers in China, Chinese Xi Jinping's got the keys. So, and he like, well, anyway, I'll leave it at, at uh, I was contact was made with me to explain like that these things were going to change very quickly. And, and he didn't respond quickly. But my question, Beth, if they added these Slack like features and they doubled the price, what would happen? How many customers would they lose? If any, what percentage of customers would they lose? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Netflix question, which was like, I remember when it was like five bucks and then it was 10 bucks and now it's 15. And I think when you have this kind of traction and this level of product market fit that when the time is right, I don't think the time is right right now, but I think that they could increase their prices. But I really like what Zoom's doing too, is Pinterest is starting to integrate with Zoom for uh, creative hobbyist uh demonstration so you know if you're on pinterest and you're a fashion designer or something you would integrate oh. they're integrated with zoom and they're going to hold fashion classes or fashion presentations so i think zoom actually has that developer flywheel where like what is everyone else going to do with zoom and their apps you know and that's something that i'm really keen the on. api yeah, yeah. To the api yeah all right mm -hmm. so if they did double it let's just say they went crazy 
and they decide to double it in uh, you know January first. They double the price. You know, in three weeks they double the price. What percentage of users do you think they lose? I think they'd keep the majority of them. I don't think people are going to leave Zoom. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's where I'm at. <laughs> like, I took the long way, but that's what I. Yeah. What do you think, Alex? Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Yeah, I would agree. Think about it this way. Like we all use some streaming music service. I, I'm a Spotify user and have been for a million years. They charge me something stupid, like $10 a month. You don't know, do you? Uh, well, no. See, I mean, this is, this is how cheap these services are. When you don't, when you don't even remember, I have the family plan for Spotify, which is I think sure. 15 bucks a month. And I just gave it to my brothers, my mom, and I think two of them used it, but I'm like, th this is such a ridiculous sale. I used to buy 20 CDs a year for 20 bucks each, and this is $180. My whole family gets all music all the time. Yeah. So if they raised that, if they said, now, Alex, it's now $40 a month, I would be like, well, that sucks. All right. I, I wouldn't even blink twice about it. That, that to me is a non-negotiable service. I'm essentially, I will pay anything mm. Spotify asks of me. And I wonder how close Zoom is getting to that point. Because Netflix has become like electricity in a house. You have to have it back to best point. So like, I, I wonder if Zoom has reached that threshold. And if so, how much defense that'll give them. But I think it's going to be a lot. I think pricing they have a lot of pricing power. power. crazy in that product. When, how long have you been on Amazon Prime, Alex? Oh, I mean, I can't recall not being on it. So I mean, ages. Year one. Do you remember what you paid year one? I don't know what I'm paying now. Introductory price. How much does, how much does it cost? You don't, need, you, you don't know what you paid originally and you don't know what you pay now. Beth, how long have you been on Amazon Prime? I love this. <laughs> I think about four years. I want to say it's 99 a year. Do you remember 50? your first price you paid? I, I feel like it was 99 a year. Yeah. Okay. The introductory price was 50 to 60 bucks uh, and it's 150 bucks a year now. Okay. And the reason none of us actually even know what we pay for it is because it is such tremendous value that we wouldn't, I mean, who would ever not have two day delivery? It, it, they've boiled the frog, right? And it's, I, you know, I, I, I wonder about DoorDash to the, to the discussion we're having here is does DoorDash have that same thing where I kind of feel like the pricing on DoorDash and even Uber Eats and some of these things, I, I do hear people who are affluent saying, well, it's kind of expensive. Maybe I should go pick it up. <laughs> I mean, that was us last night. Um, we were running late for dinner and I didn't want to cook and I had book club with my dad and Liza had a thing and, and, you know, just, I was like, I'm just gonna order Indian food. And it was like, so like, it was supposed to be like 50 or 60 bucks for us both to eat Indian food in our house. And I was like, okay, but like, uh, maybe we don't need that. Maybe we, I mean, it just felt to me like all of a sudden it was like 20% more money than I wanted to spend on dinner because I was going right. to eat it at home on the couch in front of the TV yeah. where I always am. What about you, Beth? You ha have you had that like? I mean, listen, we have people on the call right now who are, you know, are not price sensitive uh, for for the extra twenty bucks it costs to bring have dinner brought to the house, but they they've actually kind of charge what it the real cost is, right? And and the real cost is not de minimis. Do you yeah. even think about the cost now, Beth? I'm kind of in the same boat where even like my OTT connected TV, like I have so many apps that I'm paying for. I think I'm oh, I'm paying more than I used to for cable. Uh, Amazon Prime, Netflix, but when it comes to DoorDash, for some reason, I always look at that price and I'm like, that doesn't feel right. We we actually pick up a lot, so because of that, I it's like I don't mind tipping the driver, and I want the driver to be paid well, but it feels like there's extra junk fees in there that I'd rather not pay twenty dollars for delivery. So yeah, I'm kind of in that camp. I am not price sensitive, but I do look at those numbers sometimes, and I'm like, and you know what I realized? I was having I had um, somebody on the podcast who Chow Now. 
and they provide software, enterprise software to restaurants. And they charge like 500 bucks a month or something. So if you're a restaurant and you want to basically have the software of Uber Eats or DoorDash, you can have that. But you don't, you, you have to bring your own delivery service, right? And what I realized when I started doing the back of the envelope math, because I grew up in the restaurant business, do you know who was doing, do you know what delivery people were getting paid prior to DoorDash and, and Uber Eats and Grubhub? They were getting paid like $20 a shift for a 12-hour shift off the books. They were typically illegal immigrants who were being taken advantage of. They would be given 10 or 20 bucks in cash, and then they would get a buck or two a delivery, and they would get whatever tips they had. So they would probably net out to 5 to 10 bucks an hour off the books, or if it was a slow night, they might only go home with 25 bucks. That's kind of how the industry worked. So you had this underground economy that was subsidizing food delivery. And now you have these companies have to do it by the books. And even doing it by the books with gig workers, it's really expensive to do. Shows up. I mean, I mean, whenever you finish clicking the food items and then the actual bill comes up in, in like Uber Eats, for example, which is what I use, there's like more lines than I expect. And I feel vaguely annoyed by that, especially because I know there's markup built into the food prices because I'm ordering from restaurants I used to go to. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm paying every direction here and the restaurant isn't doing that well. And the delivery driver isn't really making mint. I, I feel like instead I'm kind of just helping the, the company that's doing the least work. They're not driving the car. They're not making the food. Why is DoorDash worth $60 billion when all the restaurants are closing? And to be clear, the company's arguments about why this is not as bad as I'm making it out to be. But like that does, that song plays in my head consistently when I, when I execute these transactions. All right, let's look at some of the bets that you're making, Beth, uh, that you think might be sleepers or undervalued in this crazy market. Fubo TV, first I'm hearing about this, sports betting integration, founded in 2015, Q3 revenue, 61 million. 47% increase year over year. So they're on this like $200 million run rate, $2 billion market cap. That's only 10 times their run rate. Yeah. And their forward is actually, uh, forward revenue growth is 70% next year. So they're guiding for that already. What I like about Fubo is, uh, so connected TV and OTT apps, they're actually reaching uh, like a hype that 2021 through 2024 are going to be golden years for, you know, your Roku and, and those kinds of uh, companies. And Fubo is relatively unknown. And the reason why the majority of the people continue to subscribe to cable is for live sports. And uh, actually, PricewaterhouseCoopers did a study and nine out of 10 people who have cable today kept it for sports. And eight of those, uh, eight out of 10 would cancel it if they could replace their live sports. These are not like your casual home team, you know, football fans that could just do the fragmented ESPN+. Plus. So what Fubo does is it aggregates all sports, live streams, and you can get that for about 60 a year. That's really exciting on its own because there's so much statistics and so many uh, trends supporting the live sports uh, audience. But the bigger catalyst is the sports betting. And I really like the backers on this one. You have Disney and you have Sky Media. I've actually done, I was actually a VC scout for Sky Media about 10 years ago. And these guys are great when it comes to sports betting. Um, they're maybe the world's best company when it comes to sports betting. It's a 20 billion uh, market in the UK. So when you're taking those kinds of strong backers and you have that kind of a trend and you have the right year for it, I think that 2 billion market cap is so low that it's worth, uh, worth a look. And we now have wager, sports wagering. The Supreme Court said wagering is going to be, uh, what is that, in 2018? They said, hey, sports wagering's legal. States want to do it. They can do it. And lo and behold, <laughs> the NBA, 
the league that had been dogged by the most uh, gambling scandals, you know, uh, Donahue, the referee, and Michael Jordan potentially having to take a year off because of sports betting. And they are embracing it more than anybody, it seems. Like Adam Silver wants to put a team in Vegas. Uh, which would have been foreboden in the, you know, just uh, under Stern in the, the NBA. I think there's 10 states right now where it's legal. And then other people use VPNs to get around that. But I, I think over time, it's kind of like uh, some of the other cannabis or some of the other ones that are kind of in limbo between how many states have, have, have approved it. But again, like I really like, I really like the Sky Media backing. And I think that they're the ones to get it done. Yeah. What, any thoughts on um, this? wagering space are you seeing a lot of these companies you know getting backed because we as venture capitalists typically have no wagering in our documents no drugs no wagering no porn mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what we can invest in DraftKings has done well in the market this year uh but again yeah. I, I really like fubo better because i like the fact that it's also the streaming channel for the live sports so you'll get that 60 dollars a month and then you'll have this catalyst for the revenue growth i like that combo a lot alex any thoughts on wagering uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised, Jason, that you would constrict yourself so heavily with your LP <laughs> agreements. It sounds like some sort of like, you know, no choice in, inquisition, uh, agreement there. Um, as a, as a bad poker player, um, I'm a fan of, of friendly wagering. And, uh, I, I think that best point about Sky is really good because Sky is fantastic. I'm a F1 fan. So I watch a lot of Sky F1 and, uh, they're just a tremendous organization. So, uh, with her thesis, I would, uh, I would concur. I will say I don't see a lot of startups in my neck of the woods that are working on this. I think because of what you just said, the capital sources that they would usually turn to are pretty dry. Uh, that may change in time. I think cannabis is now backable by more groups of people. And I'm sure this will yeah. follow in that, in that vein. But currently it doesn't come up enough for me to have much of a thesis on it other than uh, I like sports and I like gambling. Yeah. I mean, basically it's a other jurisdictions now are becoming the funding sources. So if you look at cannabis, all the Canadian, you know, Canada had the federal, had the national referendum. I happened to be there the week before it happened at some speaking at some event and literally people were just throwing edibles and smoking joints everywhere. It was hilarious. But they all went public on the Canadian markets because Canada was like, yeah, we'll take that business. And, and here we are in America, only 18 states have legalized sports betting. I'm not sure we are where we are with the cannabis national referendum. Twilio, man, Jeff's done an amazing job at acquiring companies, SendGrid and Segment. Beth, thoughts on Twilio and, and their potential as a company? Overvalued, appropriately valued, management? I think Twilio is going to be a big surprise over the next five years. And it's because of the pivot that they've done, which has been somewhat underreported. So they did these acquisitions at SendGrid segment. They also have Flex, the contact center, and they're really transitioning from cloud communications and APIs over to becoming a data company. And I believe, in my opinion, they're doing it just in time as things become more decentralized towards the edge. Uh, Twilio being on edge devices and being that close to the customer as a touchpoint is really nice positioning for them as edge computing starts to be built out. So I think the Twilio that we knew over the last 10 years, it's, that's a great start. And I think COVID really helped them. Uh, but I think the Twilio over the next 10 years is going to look very different. And I love a pivot when you go from having that strong foundation over to leveraging the data that uh, you know you can control and is, is the first party data. And, and they're basically saying like, hey, rather than have you know centralized data management platforms, which Adobe Oracle offer, uh, why not get closer to your customer, get in their inbox, get on the contact center or whatever AI bot you have serving them and, and, and run some data, 
and, and really figure out how to market them and create publisher segments and increase your ROI. And, and that to me, like I can just see that vision and I'm pretty bullish on that right now, okay? especially after the last earnings call where they really pieced it together, uh, which was this omni-channel marketing play. Mm, so in a way, a more technical HubSpot. Uh, or yes. And Mark maybe, go, maybe yes. sort of, yeah, exactly. So any thoughts? Uh, I mean, you've covered Jeff uh, for a long time, Alex. Any thoughts on his performance as a CEO? We saw him as a product-driven CEO and now becoming, I would say, an acquisition empire building. I'll call it empire building. Like He went from product to empire building. Any thoughts on Jeff and that transition well, he's made? Yeah, if you all of a sudden have way more money to spend, I mean, the the value creation of Twilio has been been epic. I mean, the company has done very well since its IPO, uh, and so you have tons of liquid currency to play with. Why not go out there and buy the things you want, accrete revenue, and as Beth said, build out a much better and bigger product feature. I mean, if you can grow your TAM and accelerate your growth at the same time, huzzah! Uh, what I'll say about Jeff, I talked to him a month or two ago uh, at TC. Um, the only concern that I would have is he wrote a book. And I have it. I need to read it. But I always get worried when business people start writing books. Uh, what are you doing with your time? Why aren't you doing yeah. what you used to be doing? Are you a guru now? Are you are you Mark Benioff Jr.? Because we already yeah. have Mark, and I don't need any more of that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure the book's lovely. Uh, I'm sure they're going to keep executing well. But you know, when companies get sufficiently large, which is kind of the it's point, like that when I'm they making, build a building, right? Like when you start building like the Apple campus or the Salesforce tower. I, I see it in startups when they when they start having arguments over the reception area and like uh. the, the kitchen. And I'm like, can we get off the kitchen and the reception area and just put up a folding table and get back to the product? <laughs> like there's always some moment in the board meeting where the two founders are fighting over right. the lunchroom and the new campus. And I mean, it's, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a tell. Apple built that enormous spaceship campus down in uh, in Cupertino, and then they launched $550 headphones. So obviously, it's worked out incredibly well for them because that's the most brilliant product choice I've ever heard in my entire life. That was sarcasm, by the way. Yes, I, it was dripping. Uh, do you think when we see the most... In a, I mean, the M1 chip, uh, is it M1, the one they put yes. in the new chip? I mean, that does seem to be a really good sign that they understand the flaws in the desktop product line, which is it crashes spinning wheel of death. But then you see like these like silly things like $550 headphones and you're just like, what are they doing over there? Are they just trying to wring every ounce of margin? And, and where's, where are the, where's the new innovative product? Where's the AR glasses? Like, I think the you, M1 are you worried about be, them? No, I think the M1 is, is, is sufficiently interesting that uh, it's going to change things up. I mean, I, I'm on a MacBook Pro right now. I have gaming PCs as well because I'm a dork. But I mean, like the M1's the first chip that's come out in uh, time immemorial for me that I've actually wanted to go buy a machine just to use because it is that efficient and that interesting. Um, so I think all the headphones and all the jokes we made about how many pairs of AirPods we've all bought over the last couple of years is, is what funded that. You know, so yeah. they've taken that that cash flow and put it to good use. Now there needs to be an M2 and an M3. It needs to be as impressive, and maybe Intel will stop being. Intel for five, 10 years, kind of get back on track. I'm not optimistic about that personally, but um, no, I think Apple's going to be great. But uh, back to Twilio, because I've, I've derailed us. I'm sorry. Um, no, okay. I concur with Beth's generally bullish take on the company, given the history and uh, the business plan. I think it's good. All right. Tell us what C3.ai is, Beth. First time hearing of this company. It's enterprise AI, and they work with a lot of the verticals that I think are really interesting, manufacturing, oil and energy. Uh, you know, my understanding is they're just using AI software to make those industries function more efficiently. Uh, the founder, I believe, is from Oracle, right, Alex? 
Yeah, Tom Mark, Siebel. Tom Siebel, he's from Oracle. Tom Siebel, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a lot of people really follow Tom Siebel as, you know, they think that is a really strong backer. Um, I like them a lot because we've been covering AI and the AI economy is just, it's, it's going to be so large that it's almost hard for us to imagine. We have a target number of about four times larger than mobile, and mobile brought us, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, et cetera. So um, if you think about the native apps and all that. So we are looking for a lot of AI entries right now. So. And if we look at this company, $41 million in their most recent quarter, uh, $165 million run rate, uh, $12 billion market cap. So playing our uh, fun little game here in terms of multiples, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty pretty juicy multiple. It's a very juicy uh, multiple. It's second to Snowflake, I think. And I yeah. believe both Snowflake and C3 are valuations we have literally never seen before in, in the markets. So, But it's uh, on a small revenue number. So growing into it would not be as hard. Is that your thesis, Beth? This one's lumpy because uh, I think it was the last quarter they only had 16% growth, but in the past they've had up to 70. It's just really lumpy. It's newer. And, uh, but I... I'm, I'm mainly investing in the product at that point. Do you, Beth, feel good about SPACs and companies getting public earlier? Uh, or do you think there's an inventory problem vis-a-vis -vis Nicola, Fisker, and a bunch of people who are obviously uh, unqualified to run businesses? We entered one SPAC so far, which was Luminar. Uh, it was a flyer. It broke all of our rules. And we went ahead and did it because uh, my on my team, I have a technical analyst that will get us back out quickly if the market turns on it. But overall, I would say I, can, I stay away from them. Uh, it goes back to kind of that beginning comment that the majority of super legitimate, long-standing startups and tech companies that go public tend to trade below their opening price six months later. I think these SPACs are going to follow minimum that similar trend, keyword being minimum. So, you know, uh, we don't we don't like to see a lot of loose rules for public markets, and the SPACs have found an interesting loophole. There's a lot of inventory on the market. Uh, we have been very conservative, with the exception of Luminar. That's the lidar company, correct? Yes, that's the lidar company. And the idea there is they will be selling to the, you know, self-driving car companies of the world, or for smartphones and gadgets, or both. Uh, autonomous vehicles mainly. They're partnered with Mobileye. If Mobileye was a pure play, I, I would actually invest in them. They're, they come with uh, Intel though. <laughs> so not investing in Intel. But you know, I Mobileye is the ADAS system. They use cameras. They're going to create redundancy and team up with LiDAR and run both so that it's very safe on a redundancy level. I think Elon Musk has had his debate about this and they're saying, there's no debate. We're going to use both so that uh, you know this vehicle is just very safe. I like that partnership with Mobileye. I like the Volvo and Daimler partnership. Uh, but I, you know, of all of the entries we've done, that is probably the most speculative one just because it's almost pre-revenue. I think they had about 18 million in revenue in 2019. So um, I think that if you're going to get into SPACs, if you're going to do this, you should be doing it daily and you should be experienced, basically. This is not for the casual investor. Right. Right. Uh, and the quality seems incredibly highly variable. And when you look Alex, at the promoters, for every person who's a Chamath or a Reed Hoffman or, a, you know, Mark Pincus, people who we know have, you know, and <laughs> have built actual companies, right? And, and who know what they're doing. I, it seems to me that every retired person, ex-celebrity or somebody with a waning following. Sure. And nothing to do living in Miami Beach or some other 
tax jurisdiction or a place where you can't have your home taken from you <laughs> because of the domicile laws. That's when I get a little worried. There's some weird promoters out there promoting this stuff, and I think the inventory is suspect. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, SPACs are just ICOs for the public markets. And, you know, when I was learning about all this stuff, they were called blank check companies and they were yeah. used to float trash. So, yeah. you know, I'm not shocked that we're seeing Nikola, which went up because idiots bought it and it's going down because it was always run by dorks. I mean, I mean, my God, what are we doing? The yeah. public markets are super frothy. You can do a lot of fun things in them today, but, uh, you know, mostly the companies that even I've heard of that are going public via SPACs are not that. Great. Metro Mile in the insurtech space. If you look at, at its year over year revenue, uh, it's down sharply. If you look at Open Door, which is going public via SPAC, its numbers aren't super enticing. Um, these are just second rate companies going out via or young formerly companies. exotic methods. Or young companies, I think, in those, in some of those cases, like. Why there's so much money in IPOs right now? Why why won't you just go public? We just spent you know 20 minutes at the top of the show explaining how much demand there is for IPO shares. There is a ludicrous amount of demand for them. Everyone's raising their range, pricing above it, and exploding. If that's not attractive to you, you're probably not ready to go out because everyone's managing to do well. Like C3.ai is up like 150 percent, and this is the first time I've disagreed with Beth all show. The revenue has been flat for three sequential quarters, and. I know it's up 70% year over year, but like it's been really flat for a while. I'm, I've been, I was surprised to see it do what it did given how many times it's turned in $41 million in revenue. Beth, any thoughts? Yeah, I think it's just really looking into the future on enterprise AI software. And it's, uh, it, overall, I think that I, I completely agree with you, Alex. If you look only at the fundamentals, the trailing, that it makes absolutely no sense. We have been wanting to get into the enterprise application layer for a long time, and we think this could be it. So we're we are we are investing in the in the trend. And like I said, uh, it does require watching the market very very closely, which I don't do. I that's what my partners do. So uh, with that one, uh, especially, I think that again you have to be somewhat experienced to be watching the market. For sure, okay. and I understand your thesis, but from my the yeah. way that I look at the market, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But from that yeah. end, I, I, I get it. I, I'm, I'm really curious about what happens to that company. It's going to be a fascinating kind of like business case, I think, of the next, you know, six quarters or so. I'm stoked. Uh, yeah. And it, we're going back to the future in a way where retail investors are going to get to participate in companies that are earlier in their product market fit, earlier in their, or more probably accurately, their predictable revenue phase, right? So this is uh, means more risk, which could mean potentially more reward. Um, let's talk about, uh, as we wrap here, 2021, what top IPOs are you most uh, intrigued by and or tracking, Beth? I really, really like UiPath. I think it's coming public in the first half of the market. It's made a lot of the top lists for top growing companies. Deloitte had it up there as number one, I think, in 2019. It's joined Snowflake's. Uh, I'm sorry, Snowflake on Forbes. It's on Financial Times. Uh, it grew about 400% over the last two years. So that's combined uh, two years. And it uh, is automation processing software. So uh, kind of robotics automation. So it gets rid of the menial tasks of loan processing or accounting or uh, rec you know receivables, things like that. And it basically gets rid of some of that uh, you know redundancy in, in, in certain positions. And uh, it, the Fortune 500 has really embraced that company. And your number two? 
Well, I guess I'll comment on Roblox. Uh, we're not entirely sure we're going to enter, but what I like about Roblox is the age group that you can uh, get some exposure to in your portfolio. So it's the under 13. Snap has that going for it, which is how do you get exposure to that age group without Snap? Um, and, you know, the one thing I guess, you know, Roblox has had, I, th I think, 90% uh, you know, year over year revenue in the most recent quarter. Uh, gaming, though, I think you can ride that wave a little bit, but obviously kids are going to go back to school. And I think they really are going to go back to school. I think you could argue that some office workers may go into more of a hybrid mode. But uh, so, and I've been through uh, boom and bust before with gaming. When I first got started, Zynga was the big was the big company, Gree out of Japan, Supercell, and it was a boom bust cycle. Uh, you know, a pretty heavy boom bust cycle. So I guess if you're going to ride that wave, uh, you got to be prepared to get off uh, whenever it's time. But yeah, I think Roblox is one that has a lot of traction. That audience seems to really like that. That the game it's the nature of a hit-based business, correct? Like yes. you're, it's very hard unless you have such a massive portfolio like EA or in the IP space, Disney with Marvel and Star Wars and Disney and Pixar. You really need to have a, a wide enough collection of assets that when Star Wars, you know, falls out of favor, Marvel picks up for it or vice versa. And then your third? Boy, I can't think of a third right now. I mean, in general, we actually try not to enter IPOs until the lockup period is expired. Got it. For what it's worth. Yeah. Alex, what are you looking at? Well, I wanted to say UiPath, but I did my homework for the show second. So Beth got <laughs> first crack at, at the right, Apple. All right. So that's okay to have a little. What do you like about UiPath? I like it in the short term. We like consensus. Because it's uh, it's it's such an amazingly quickly growing company. Uh, robotic process automation or RPA uh, is something that I I didn't fully grok until it had already become a thing. And so um, I've been super impressed with the company's ability to execute and, and expand revenue across a, a large swath of enterprise companies. What I'm concerned about longer term is RPA becoming commoditized and baked into other platforms that can offer it essentially as part of a bundle. But you know, in the short term, it's an amazingly it's a company that's executing amazingly well, and uh, that kind of growth just because of what we've seen this year with how investors treat growth, it's going to be very attractive to, to people that like to get into IPOs. So that's that's why I think it's going to be a hype offering and I'm looking forward to writing about it. Okay. And then you're no, what, what is your number one after that? Stripe, for sure. Stripe, Stripe, yeah. Stripe, Stripe, Stripe. Uh, people said that it might raise money at like a $100 billion valuation. Crazy. Yeah. But I mean, like they're doing hundreds of billions of dollars a year in processing, 2.9% plus 10 cents, whatever. And they just announced an entire suite of banking as a service products, which other people can use to plug into their platforms. So they just greatly increased their TAM uh, by doing that. And they were already huge and growing and doing well. And what I hear from the edges is that it's currently relatively well run. So growth, scale, product expansion. I mean, it's, it's hard, it's hard to hate on it. And, uh, sure, it's expensive. I don't think it's going to be a cheap stock, but like if I was picking a company to, uh, to fall in love with, I, uh, you know, pre S1, I think this might be it. And you also had Didi on your list, the Uber of China, which does Uber still own their 17% of Didi? I'm not I sure. think so. I think yeah. they still have that stake. Uh, the reason why I put Didi in there is because I think they're expanding into groceries. And I think we've mm. seen grocery delivery uh, have better economics than we expected. And uh, given the mass scale that's possible across Didi's network in China, it could be an attractive play. Uh, I would want to see the numbers before I told any of my friends to to buy a share. Uh, not that I would do that anyways, but like I, I'm, I'm just very, very curious about that one. And so when we do get the numbers, it's going to be a fascinating read. And uh, yeah, it looks like in September, Uber was pursuing a partial sale of its $6 billion stake in DD, which was at 15.4% when Uber obviously uh, decided that they didn't want to go into a never ending war in 
China, an authoritarian company that picks the winner of the war. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like a different era. I mean, remember when Didi and Uber was like a hot thing and the Chinese venture capital market was the biggest story in the world back in like late 17, early 18? I mean, it just it's funny how much things have matured, slowed down, and seemed to like almost ossified since then. Fewer new players at the top end and I don't know. It's, I got to think different. that people are after what happened to um, Alibaba and the because the, uh, the IPO was pulled, right? The Ant Financial IPO. Ant Financial, yeah. The Ant Financial, rather, yeah. So what what happens now with that? And then how do people look at the Chinese market, Beth? Do you think? I mean, would you want to place bets in a market that's kind of run by a king? It's tough because we've had you know, geopolitical tensions with China for about two or three years. So I think if you stay out of the China market, you could miss a lot of opportunities. We actually own Baba. We were waiting for Ant Financial. We covered it for our site on in August. And so we were pretty disappointed when they pulled it because, you know, this, uh, what, what does Alibaba own? Like 40, like 30% of that company? I, I can't remember what the windfall is, but it's substantial. And uh, yeah, I mean, Ant Financial as a product. I mean, I don't think you could have a more successful product. I mean, every human in China uses Ant Financial to the point where they won't even accept cash over Ant Financial, uh, Alipay and, uh, and whatnot. So to us that, you know, that we were, that was worth the shot and we're still in Baba, but uh, we actually just initiated in another Chinese company. Neo is a great uh, stock out of China this year. So it's tough because I can see a lot of people say it's too risky, but on the other hand, there's been some decent gains. So uh, you think whatever. it's going to geopolitically get cleaned up with Biden? Pete Buttigieg, they're saying, is going to possibly be the ambassador there. Do you think they'll take a moderate or engagement stance? Or do you think they're going to be pushed to kind of put their foot down about democracy vis-a-vis Hong Kong and Taiwan? I would like to see us be strong with China because, you know, I really like the fact we moved uh, Taiwan semi, uh, t- you know, Tyson- Taiwan semiconductors out of, uh, you know, we're moving them over to Arizona because uh, we need more manufacturing from the semiconductor uh, foundries and whatnot in this country, because that is what AI and 5G are going to be run on. And in general, uh, China cannot have our best interests in mind, and we cannot have China's best interests in mind if one of us is going to be the bigger the bigger economy. It's going to be run on AI and 5G. And so I think uh, I would like to see us have a strong stance my, myself. Alex, we are seeing a generation um, that kind of doesn't believe in capitalism or is anti-capitalism or feels capitalism needs to be constrained, broken up, et cetera, et cetera. And now we've got this competitor in China, uh, as Beth is saying, the the war we face is not going to be one fought uh, in all likelihood with tanks and submarines, but AI chips and 5G uh, routers and uh, towers. So what is your take on capitalism in America and our chance of winning the economic war with China? This is why I love this show and that's why I keep coming on. It's like, we're going to talk about tech stocks and it's like, now explain American democracy to me and how capitalism will work. But great question. I think a lot about this. (laughs) Um, Here's my take. So I think uh, capitalism in America is totally fine. And if you're worried about that, you are an idiot. We may see two or three percentage points higher on the top marginal tax rate. If that's your definition of socialism, go look up what it means and then get back Mm. to me. Now, on the China front, uh, they're making a series of mistakes. They are antagonizing every partner that they need 
regionally and also in terms of trade. So Australia and India are great examples of this rising tension. Um, and inside of China, you cannot be at all critical of anything that's happening. And that's what uh, the founder of Alibaba ran into, Jack Ma, with the financial um, IPO. If you dug into what happened, he gave a speech and was gently very gently critical of certain elements of the financial regulatory regime and how it pointed the, com- the country towards the future. And that was enough for Xi Jinping to yank the entire IPO. That means there's- Which is crazy. Yeah. It was already sold all the shares. It was going to raise like a bath, I forget, like $30 billion, something crazy like that. It was going to be a blockbuster event for the country and for capitalism inside of China. Instead, they turned it into a symbol that one person is in charge and only one person's view matters. That is not how you run a successful economy. Mm. So if you want to think about the competitiveness of the Chinese economy versus the US economy, there's going to be the US, which will be largely unchanged because of the power of corporate interests inside of Congress, or China, which is run by Z. Right. I, I know where I place my bet. Now, we got to get Trump out of the White House, and we got to get rid of the crypto fascists in our government. But hmm. I think we'll pull it off in January, and I'm very bullish on America. Um, and I think the, the the fear that Jason, I say this with affection, uh, that the older generations have in this country of the Gen Z folks being socialists, if they're really concerned about that, they could go about doing things like raising the minimum wage and allowing for universal health care in this country like every other damn industrialized nation. We don't have to live in the Stone that Age. That would be a nice negotiating uh, position. I agree. And I've been, I've been tweeting about this yeah. like- $15 an hour. I mean, Amazon went to 15, Walmart went to 11 or 12, and McDonald's stopped fighting uh, minimum wage increases. And they're not pro minimum wage increases, but at least McDonald's stopped fighting it. Beth, let's talk big picture geopolitical. You've heard Alex's position on it. Um, do, do you think China, who, who's got a better capitalistic run at this war? America or China? Who's got, is, is there an edge? And if you were to give the edge on a percentage basis, would you make it 60-40? Which way or the other? 70-30? Which way or the other? And we'll end on that. The percentage we think of who's going to win. I'm going to lay my odds as well. I'm going to go 95% America. <laughs> and it's because, Woo! yeah, it. woo, it's because we have the technology. I mean, we are leading and uh, we continue to lead and they follow you know, uh, so they are a strong follower. They can definitely rip us off and create the same technology that we created. But we're we're leading. At Nvidia, for instance, is a gem. It's a it's a gem for this country. They their chips are super powerful. They accelerate AI, and you know, AMD is also a gem. Uh, I just think that even Qualcomm, right? I mean, Qualcomm's in every single five G smartphone, uh, and Huawei is dying to get. Um, what do we need to fix to ensure that we win? Is there, are there things in yeah, this country we need, that we need to fix? Yeah, I think we need to bring manu- any, any kind of manufacturing that is re- in regards to technology needs to come back overseas. Yeah, hopefully Apple, you're hearing this. Uh, and I think it can come back, o- you know, back over uh, into our country and this side of the world with ro- robots. I mean, that, that's the whole thing for me is like, we don't need to offshore uh, manufacturing when we can use robots here and people can have great jobs and, yeah, you know, automate this process. So, 100%. And, and even if the manufacturing just becomes less dependent on China, and we put it in Vietnam, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Philippines, and, and any other number of places, which Japan is actually subsidizing their companies, they're giving them incentives to get out of China before this whole mess blows up. I think we are 80-20 versus China. I'm not as bullish as you, Beth, because I do think um, if we were to have a highly socialist, liberal, Elizabeth Warren type, uh, or Bernie Sanders type make it to the White House, which I don't think they will. But if we were to go on that side, I do think that there could be such an anti-corporate conglomerate 
a movement like we see with the AGs trying to fight Facebook uh, in the review mirror that it could cause us to lose a little bit of our entrepreneurial edge. But I do think there's a significant chance of a of civil unrest and civil war inside of China. And when I say significant, I mean, low single digit percentage, but man, the outcome of a civil war like we saw in Hong Kong, you, you talk about millions of people getting in the streets. What if tens of millions of people in the streets of China just say enough of this bullshit, we're not going to be told what we want to do anymore. And you know, you can only run over so many people with tanks as they learned in Tiananmen Square. And you cannot run over 10 million people. I mean, this could become chaos in their own country. And, and I think that's the risk factor for the for the planet is, you know, we, we have to steer China towards at least some form of basic human rights in terms of Uyghurs and people being able to access information. And, and there seem to be, be, our engagement now seems to have enabled their bad behavior. And, and this certainly this us administration has given the green light to them to behave poorly. Alex, give us your percentage. 95.5 from Beth, 80.20 from JCal. I think we're doing uh, Price is Right Pricing. So I'll go 95.001%. Okay. <laughs> just, to, just to pull ahead a little bit. So we're yeah. all feeling really <laughs> bullish. Explain. You know, I mean, remember back when it was going to be Japan that was going to take over sure. the US? This actually predates me a little bit. So I, I wasn't actually around for I, this. But I, I actually I, remember it's the 80s. Yeah. They bought yeah, Sony, yeah. Columbia Records, Rockefeller Center. Right. And they started buying all the real estate in Hawaii. I was only here for half of a year of the 80s, but it was a great half year, I have to say. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of similar fears here. And if you go back just two years in, in our little world, Jason, of startups and venture capital, People were, were raving about the uh, you know nine nine six that you work like nine to nine six days a week in China and yeah. how they're going to eat our lunch and they're going to crush us and you know et cetera et cetera et cetera. Uh, did, you know not really it hasn't nope. really happened and uh, I think it's going to keep happening. I think I think rising central government in China like if you're worried about you know Elizabeth Warren becoming president and enacting some you know modest critiques of M and A behavior, think about a country in which you don't have the ability to contest anything. I mean, like that's not a business yeah. climate that's going to win. Now, China does have a lot more folks than we do, and that's going to lead to um, you know more economic output. I think we're going to lose the GDP war, but I don't think we're going to lose the per capita GDP war and the uh, and what I would call the freedom dividend of having a functional press and the ability to have dissent. And just to throw in one little note, and then I'll shut up. Uh, I think what's happening to Hong Kong is a uh, catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we absolutely. and Tibet and Xinjiang, and I think the human rights mess Weavers. here should make you think twice about supporting companies that are supporting that government and if you're I, not I, willing to put your morals where your money is fuck you and you can i, I agree out. i mean look at the nba it's like there you, you you can't be in the nba and be you know a proponent of black lives matter here and then take daryl morey and make him a sacrificial lamb for saying freedom in hong kong you you can't have it both ways just because and and i was kind of disappointed in some of the nba leadership where they were like hey everybody shut up about china and it's like, I understand it's 20% of your revenue, but is it worth 20% of your revenue to lose your soul over being able to say people have basic human rights? I, I, ju I would just rather give up the 20%, give up the 15%. And then you look at movies being made. They're changing the end of movies. You can't have a Chinese villain in a movie anymore because then you can't play in China. And, th and they've banned a number of American actors from ever, their movies ever playing. There's, if you just yeah. type in American actors banned in um, China, you'll see there's a list of people who, and then those, I think Richard Gere is one of them. And Richard Gere's career went down because Hollywood is so in on the take. So you, you look at the NBA and you look at the um, Hollywood, two of the most virtual signaling groups in the world. And, you know, they're on the right side of history with those, some of that virtual signaling, obviously. 
but they won't stand up for people in China. It's bullshit. Beth, I think the people that are making those choices aren't the ones who care about Black Lives Matters. The players yeah, consistently exactly. in the NBA are showing up, defending their fellow citizens, arguing for racial equality and a crackdown on police violence. Uh, those are not the same people that are making the choices uh, about LeBron China. LeBron wouldn't say anything about China. They, they threw... But they LeBron, threw Daryl Murray under the bus. I was very disappointed in LeBron. Uh, so to be clear, Jason, absolutely. I, I just want to make sure that we're putting the onus of blame in that particular situation on the people who own the teams, who are not, by the way. Yeah, no, I woke. mean, they couldn't bring it up either. Well, they basically no, they, did, they a, they did a blackout. To. They just said, listen, nobody can talk about the subject. We, if, if we keep going, it's going to be 20 minutes and people are going to be yes, irked okay. with us that we didn't shut up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any final thoughts, Beth, as we wrap up? I agree with everything you guys have said. Okay. Yeah. There you have it, folks. Uh, great job, Beth. Any plugs? Any uh, where we can find you guys? Uh, the newsletter is beth.technology, correct? I have a free newsletter. Uh, there's uh, stock tips and stock analysis that comes out for free every week. And then we have a $65 a month premium subscription where you get access to the portfolio and the trades that we're making and really in-depth research. So Love it. And Alex, obviously, everybody go right now and search since you're in your podcast player. Uh, for the Equity Podcast, and you will hear Alex there. And uh, Alex, do you have a Substack? Have you quit TechCrunch to do your Substack newsletter yet? No, I'm, I'm trying to have kids, so the idea of having paternity leave sounds nice. Uh, no, I'm, yeah. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Alex, and uh, say hi. That's it. Okay, there you have it, folks. Uh, we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. <laughs>